Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 10 Perhaps it would be good to start with uh, an announcement, which is a sad one, which is that Bede Griffiths has died. Now, you may or may not know who Bede Griffiths was. I didn't know that he had died. I simply opened the, this morning's New York Times, and there's a uh, obituary. Uh, he died on Thursday in India. And uh, he has... He had been here in Sonoma a few times. I spent a little time with him on a couple occasions, and I found him to be an extraordinary person. And perhaps it's worth noting what he tried to do with his life. Later on today, I'm going to focus on this claim made by the the evangelist of the Gospel of John and made by other Christian writers that that the Christian revelation would have worldwide implications. And often that has been interpreted to either as nonsense or to mean that uh, Christianity would eventually vanquish all other faiths, all other religions. And I don't think it's nonsense and I don't think it means necessarily that Christianity is going to vanquish other religions. And somehow Bede Griffith seems to me to be an important uh, example for that. He went to India. Perhaps I should just read the, uh, the part, part of the obituary. The Reverend Bede Griffith, a Roman Catholic monk and author who strove to bridge Christianity and the Hindu and Buddhist traditions of India, died on Thursday in the ashram he had headed since 1968 in southeastern India. He was 86 years old. Later on it says, Bede Griffith, by the way, had been a a close, close friend of C.S. Lewis's, and they had both converted about the same time. Actually, I talked to him about this. Uh, I coaxed him into reminiscing about his C.S. Lewis days, which was marvelous at, at Oxford. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, but he said, C.S. Lewis, they both converted to Christianity, uh, but, he's, but B. Griffith says, the, 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 the velocity of my conversion was such that I just went straight on into Catholicism. <laughs> he said, C.S. Lewis was able somehow to hold himself up. <laughs> Anyway, um, so uh, he's a convert, and uh, then he became a Benedictine monk and a priest. And so here's what it says. Uh, Father Griffiths lived in the simple fashion of India's rural population. He adopted the garb and outward appearance of an Indian itinerant monk, going barefoot with long hair and beard and clothed in a shawl, and a length of orange-colored homespun cotton knotted at the waist. But in his speech and manner, Father Griffiths always retained the traces of his education at Oxford, where he became a student and lifelong friend of the English scholar, novelist, and theologian C.S. Lewis. 
and this is the point I wanted to read. At Father Griffith's ashram, daily mass was celebrated following the established Roman Catholic rite, but with the addition of a few familiar Hindu gestures and symbols. Community prayers, which consisted of psalms, Bible readings, and Catholic hymns, were always preceded by a Sanskrit chant and a reading from Hindu sacred text or mystical poetry, and so on. Uh, the point is that B. Griffith found no need to, to, to try to have a, a resolution of tensions between Christianity and the faith of India. He saw those faiths as part of a, uh, uh, our human effort to come to grips with the mysteries of life and of God, and he simply placed his own Christian faith in the midst of that. Maybe he's an example to us. If the Gospels are true, the Gospels say that this revelation will uh, have effects to the ends of the earth, I think B. Griffith may be a, a, a marvelous example of how that might come about. Okay. As you know, the Gospel of John is divided into two uh, sections, excluding the prologue and, if you want to, excluding the epilogue. But the two main sections of the Gospel go from chapter 1, verse 19, to the end of chapter 12, and from the beginning of 13 uh, to the epilogue in 21. And the first, the scholars have unanimously almost uh, referred to the first half of the gospel as the book of signs and the second half of the gospel as the book of glory. In the book of signs, Jesus is calling people, giving signs that awaken people to his significance, uh, inviting people to uh, come to him, to have to rediscover who they are and where they are by entering into a relationship with him. You know, this gospel, more so than, in the, than the synoptics, insists that, a, that it is Jesus's, if you will, personality, which is, I, I hesitate to use that term because it's so trivialized in our world, but it's Jesus's uh, personality that changes people. It's contact with, with Christ that changes people. It's not the wisdom of his teachings uh, or anything like that. And so the book of signs is an is a invitation to come, as he says to the Samaritan woman, and drink from this water that he has to give, which will well up to eternal life in you. So discover a new sense of self, a new vitality, by having his self and vitality rub off on you. That's the book of signs. The book of glory, in this gospel, the glory, the, the hour of glory is the hour of the crucifixion. The crucifixion and the resurrection are the same event in this gospel. They, they are narrated as separate, and they are separate in some ways, but uh, in some fundamental way, they're the same thing. Jesus, it's when he's lifted up that, uh, that God is glorified. And so uh, the book of glory is really the story of the passion. It's prelude, it's... it's uh, the, the crucifixion at the center of it and the resurrection so uh, the business of the book of signs is to get those who are willing to become intensely involved in this man's life and living message once that involvement has come about then the book of glory begins to 
do something that's very that has a that has a, a parallel in the psychotherapeutic problem of the transference, and that is to say, there's a moment at which, in the, when uh, starting with chapter 13, when Jesus begins to prepare those who have become intensely involved with him for his own departure, and unlike classical psychotherapy, he does not try to return the transference to them as though their attraction to him was a projection. But he simply tries, he disappears in such a way, or he departs, that's the Johannine way of talking about it, in such a way that they will, that they will realize that in falling in love with him, they, it was really God they had fallen in love with, which is an amazing thing because in our tradition we have this talk and it's mostly talk about loving God as though somehow that's a ordinary thing as though that somehow that's a that's makes sense or is obvious or it's all in our language and we it's so much in our language that we don't realize that it's like saying fly to the moon I mean to love God? Well, yes, one loves God. I mean, but what does that mean? A kind of vague respect, a sense, well, there is a God, a belief in God? I mean, but I think we have to, uh, I think we have to rub away some of these, uh, uh, some of this familiarity and try to get back to the radical implication of that. In this gospel, Jesus loves God. I mean, he loves God. He loves God. It's hard for us to come to grips with that because for us it's such a pale thing. It's belief or disbelief or a vague trust or something. This is the gospel of love. And I think it takes seriously this idea or these, these words that we've said all these years about, about loving God. Okay, well, so chapter 12 starts with... Uh, Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner party for him there. Martha waited on them, and Lazarus was among those at table. I should pause here to say something about the dinner party. You know, Jesus, in this gospel and in the others, used the dinner party as a... I mean, it was, you could say... What was what distinguished his ministry? You could list a number of things to distinguish his ministry. He spoke in parables. Uh, he, uh, if there was a, a, a ministerial act to perform on the Sabbath, he went ahead and performed it, healing or teaching or so on. Um, and uh, he did an awful lot of his close-up work at dinner parties, and that is to say. And these dinner parties were not occasions for, uh, as sometimes our sessions are, I have to apologize. These dinner parties were not occasions for people listening to some long-winded discourse. They were opportunities for people to just rub up against this guy, to feel the love and uh, of his presence, the significance of their lives that they could... Uh, in his presence, they could feel their lives filled with a kind of significance that they seemed not to be filled with otherwise, and so on and so forth. And 
clearly this was an, a distinguishing feature of Jesus' ministry because you have those accusations in the synoptics about him eating and drinking, that he's a, a glutton and a drunkard. Because, after all, we expect our, our religious reformers to be ascetic the way John the Baptist was and to come in saying doom, doom and gloom and woe to you and stop all this uh, horsing around. And here comes Jesus eating and drinking. Dinner parties. It's quite remarkable. It's another one of those things that we don't notice because, uh, well, why don't we notice it? Well, anyway, so they're at a dinner party, typically at a dinner party. Mary, Martha waited on them at table. Mary brought in a pound of very costly ointment, pure nard, and with it anointed the feet of Jesus, wiping them with her hair. The house was full of the scent of ointment. Now, in these last verses of the book of signs, we get a little picture of how this campaign to get others to identify with him has worked out. So here we get in the, in the example of Mary, I think we get the way it should be. What Mary does is that she, she bestows on Jesus a gesture of lavish, unreserved devotion, Ca- throwing aside all uh, caution, all practicality, uh, all social... Uh, decorum because after all this was quite an outrageous act socially to perform uh, uh, Judas uh, complains about its about its economic uh, uh, folly but it was social folly as well no doubt people thought she was crazy you see so the gospel presents her as the one who got it right who lavished this gesture of devotion on Jesus. But this is coming, you know, the, as I said last week, the, the story of the raising of Lazarus occurs in this gospel roughly uh, the same place that the story of the cleansing of the temple occurs in the synoptic gospels. This story, I think, has a parallel as well in the synoptic gospels, which is the point when Jesus's uh, invitation to identify with himself uh, reaches its its uh, culmination in the Synoptic Gospels. In Mark, the first Gospel, it's at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus says, uh, "Whom does whom do others say that I am?" And they go through the little litany. Well, they say you're a prophet, or uh, you know Elijah, or something like that. And Jesus says, "Whom do you say that I am?" And Peter says. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So, you know, the, the, the bell goes off, or the buzzer goes off. Somebody got it. Finally, this is, I mean, this is the... Then Jesus, at the next breath, says, You're right. Now I have to tell you something. I have to go to Jerusalem to die. And this is a total shocker. I mean, P- Peter expects that a, a Messiah is a Messiah forever. The Messiah comes to bring the Messianic banquet, which is what Jesus was doing at all these dinner parties, and that it's a, it, the Messianic reign lasts forever. It's, it's, uh, they live happily ever after and so on. And suddenly there's this thing about having to go to Jerusalem to die. And Peter tries to talk him out of it. 
And so you get this harshest thing in the world. Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says Peter is Satan. Peter says, no, don't go to Jerusalem. He says, get behind me, Satan. You only know the... You only know man's ways, not God's way. Well, this story of the anointing at Bethany is exactly parallel to that, except instead of having one figure get it right and then get it wrong, we have two figures. We have Mary and Judas. One gets it right and one gets it wrong. So Mary gives everything. And this, I think, has to be seen. I think the author of the gospel is, 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 is using this symbol as a symbol of, of the lack of any kind of reservation. Any kind of reservation. You know, when, in, in Mark where Jesus says, if you, if you try to save your psyche, you will lose it. But if you lose your psyche for my sake and the sake of the gospel, you will find it. I think it's this complete losing it that is, the, that is synonymous with finding it. And that this gesture of complete devotion, ignoring the impracticality of it, ignoring the social awkwardness of it, is, is precisely what's called for. As soon as it happens, we get the other part. And then Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the man who was to betray him, said, Why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now, remember at Caesarea Philippi when Peter said, Don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You only know the world's ways. You don't know God's ways. Well, I think Judas is speaking of the world's ways. I think he was probably saying what everybody in the room was thinking. Everybody, Jesus had, after all, been spending his time, more so in the synoptics than here, but here too, is spending his time with the outcast of society. That is to say, the poor, the sinners, the wretched, the shunned ones, the marginalized, and so on and so forth. He has demonstrated a, a, a special empathy for those who are excluded, and it comes, it would have been absolutely logical and natural for everybody to see this incredible extravagance. It would be as though somebody, it would be as though we, we brought, uh, we had a little party for um, Mother Teresa. And in order to celebrate the party, we, we, we brought out an $800 bottle of wine. How embarrassing, you see? How could we do it? So it has that, it was obvious. Judas was simply saying what everybody was thinking. And this evangelist was a little hard on Judas. You know, he, he said, well, he wasn't saying that because he really cared, but because he was a thief. And I, I think he drives the nail out of sight there because most scholars feel that Judas was a political uh, character, that he thought in political terms, that he hoped that Jesus would, would awaken uh, a spirit in Israel which would, could, could then be uh, exploited to drive the Romans out or to reestablish Israel's uh, uh, aut political autonomy and so on and so forth. So, and, and I think he's a more sympathetic figure. More, most uh, modern interpretations are rendering Judas more sympathetic. 
we don't want to render him too sympathetic because he does, in fact, um, make a terrible mistake, uh, from his point of view at least. But the point is, he said what everybody's thinking. Mary's done something absolutely outrageous. She's uh, wiping his feet with her hair and using the most expensive ointment. So Judas complained. And Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone. She had to keep this scent for the day of my burial. You have the poor with you always. You will not always have me. This is one of the most, I think, misunderstood. Well, I mean, we don't really pay attention to the scriptures anymore, but if we did, or when we used to, this was one of the most misunderstood passages, I think. You will have the poor with you always. As as though this is the sort of um, Adam Smith Jesus, you know, who recognizes that uh, the economic realities of life. It's, it's sheer nonsense. What Jesus is saying, if I could elaborate a little bit, what he's saying is, the point of his statement is, you will not always have me. He's telling them something. He's telling them that the end is near. In other words, he's interpreting what Mary is doing. She doesn't understand this interpretation until he offers it. She thinks she's simply, you know, putting oil, uh, oiling the hair particularly of a welcomed guest come from afar was a typical uh, uh, gesture in the ancient world. And so here she's anoint- she's w- even washing his feet and drying it with her hair. It's an act of supreme uh, uh, devotion. She had no idea. This anointing idea was not hers. It was his. He interpreted her act for her and for everybody else. What he's saying to them is, the end is near, folks. He's saying the same thing to them that, that he said to, Philip, to Peter at Caesarea Philippi. He's breaking the news. He's saying, the end is near. I am now being anointed for my death. It is not Mary who understands this anointing as being comparable to the anointing at death. Jesus interprets it in those terms. And I think we have to read this in light of what happened at the death of Lazarus. Jesus is concerned at the death of Lazarus in this passage and at the empty tomb story with the possible results of a wailing ritual. I think he is trying to avoid the kind of ritualization of death which only only results in the regeneration, reinforcing of conventional religious habits and reflexes and the whole, the whole business of the sacred, the primitive sacred. And so when he, I think that what's dramatic here is that he interprets this. He makes, he makes, he urges those people who have witnessed this to see this as his anointing so that any other anointing would be unnecessary. It's already been done. In a way, he's saying, I know you because I know you love me and so on and so forth, and you want to do everything right, that when I die, you're going to want to anoint me, and, and that's a part of this whole elaborate wailing ritual. 
that goes along with death. I know you're going to want to do that. And I'm going to do everything I can do to either be present when you do it, which is it, I'm now being anointed, or be totally absent when you, when you do it, which is the tomb is empty. In other words, if you're going to, go, if you're going to engage in that kind of uh, the cultic commemoration of death, you better do it when I'm here, because when I'm here, you know, Skilbeck said it's almost existentially impossible to despair in the presence of Jesus. When I'm here, you realize that I'm here to announce the Messianic banquet. And the joy of that banquet, uh, you feel the joy of that banquet in my presence. So if you want to mourn my death, mourn my death in my presence so that you don't mourn my death in such a way as to forget the Messianic banquet and convert my life and death into another, another feature of conventional religion. So I think it's very important that the, the act of Jesus is reinterpreting this gesture as a, as a ritual anointing is, is extremely important. I think he, tr he will only trust that process in a way. It's going to take place. I'd rather be there when it happens so that you won't forget what this is all about, namely liberation. And this thing about you will always have the poor. You see, what he means by that is that, yes, indeed, we should go minister to the poor. And you will have from now till the end of time to do that. You must do that. Never, we should never let this verse be quoted as some resignation or acquiescence or shrugging of the shoulders in the presence of poverty. Not at all. He's saying, go to. Plenty of time for it. We ought to be doing it. Have at it. Except you won't even be inspired to do that unless you get, it, get what it is I'm here to reveal to you. The impulse to help the poor is something that comes out of a... I, well, let's put it this way. The empathy for victims is something that is born of the biblical revelation. I think the singularity of the biblical revelation, it doesn't mean that other traditions don't invite us to be empathetic with the poor, but the empathy with victims as victims is, a, is I think, a uniquely biblical revelation. And Jesus is saying you will, your concern for the poor is not something that is in juxtaposition to your devotion to me. Your devotion to me is, is the source of your concern for the poor. It is only as you understand me as the one who is rejected, as the supreme victim, that you will stay in touch with your empathy for victims. So you will have plenty of time to do that. But in order to ensure that you will have the desire to do that, attend to me. Watch what is about to happen. Be present to the passion. And then the, the, the determination to minister the poor will be a permanent feature of your awareness. You see what I'm saying? There's a kind of paradox going on here. So it's not as though he's being cavalier about poverty. Okay, well, anyway, so we have Mary's reaction and Judas's reaction. So then it says the next day, crowds, so now we're going to get the crowd's reaction. Crowds come up from, uh, to the festival and they hear that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessings on the king of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are, have been 
uh, inspired that this man may become their new king. I'll tell you about a, one of my sources. I have strange sources. Maybe I've told you about this before. but Some years ago, I happened upon a comic book, a hardbound sort of big comic book a format story of the life of Jesus put out by some uh, some evangelical group in Texas you know and I thought well this is a curious thing but it's actually marvelous because it 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 elaborate it embroiders on the gospel but it does so in the light of some pretty solid scholarship for instance particularly its treatment of Judas it shows Judas uh, it shows an encounter with Judas and Jesus in their youth uh, that continues into their adulthood. And Judas is a political type. He's a zealot who wants to throw the, the Romans out and so on. And there comes a moment when uh, Judas decides that he joins Jesus' group because he figures that this is the man who can do it. And there comes a moment when Judas uh, realizes that this... this uh, Passover festival is the mo- it couldn't is a ripe moment for politic for a political uh, revolution, so he whips up the enthusiasm of the crowd. In other words, he's the advance man for Jesus. He he tells everybody that this is our new king, you know, and he sends a message to Jesus, saying, "I've got them ready. The crowd is ready. All you have to do is to come." charging into Jerusalem on a war horse and they will it will just turn into this incredible political ecstasy the result of which will be that we'll finally get rid of these Romans and Jesus gets the message and finds a donkey and rides in on a donkey now this is this is entirely apocryphal of course but there is a there's a quality to it. This is if we had a if we had a rabbinical tradition uh, in uh, in Christianity, we, this would be part of it. So it's a marvelous version, and it fits right in here. These people are are celebrating the fact that Israel now has a king that will be a real king and and uh, and deliver them. Jesus found a young donkey and mounted it, as Scripture says. And here John quotes from Zechariah, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See your king coming mounted on the colt of a donkey. Well, now, the whole question of kingship is a strange one in the history of Israel, as you probably know. The, the, the Old Testament ha- is, goes both ways on kingship. There are texts which celebrate kingship, think that the D- Davidic monarchy and the reign of Solomon and so on are the high point in Israel's history. And there's a very strong countercurrent to that which is basically the prophetic current which is that the kingship was a mistake the whole monarchical uh, enterprise was a mistake from the beginning and that it created uh, it, it it obliged israel to become a nation like every other nation when the people first mention kingship to to samuel in first samuel they come to him and they say they 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 say we want a king like the other nations have which all the air goes out of it because Israel, the whole purpose of Israel is to not be like other nations. So the question of kingship is, is very important here. You know, The people are expecting a king and because, like everybody else, their messianic expectations are conventional ones. They expect a king like a Davidic king, 
a king riding in with power and so on. So here he comes in on, on, the, on the donkey, quoting Zechariah by example. I mean, it's a Zechariah quote by, by manifestation. But I want to turn to that Zechariah quote so we can get the implications, the deeper and broader implications of it. It's from chapter 9 of Zechariah. It goes like this. Rejoice, rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. For see, your king is coming to you. His cause won, his victory gained, humble and mounted on an ass, on a foal, the young colt of a she-ass. And then these two uh, verses. He shall banish chariots from Ephraim and war horses from Jerusalem. Ephraim was one of the tribes, but it, was a, it, was a, it stood for the northern kingdom, Israel, and Jerusalem for the southern kingdom of Judah. He shall banish chariots from Ephraim and war horses from Jerusalem. The warrior's bow shall be banished. That's the first verse. Second verse. He shall speak peaceably to every nation, and his rule shall extend from sea to sea, from the river, namely the Jordan, to the ends of the earth. So the two concluding verses of this little pericope suggest that this king, first of all, is a king that comes in on a colt and not on a war horse, but also a king that will, that will do two things. He will uh, dismantle the apparatus of organized violence. Let's see. Banish the chariots from Ephraim, war horses from Jerusalem, the warrior's bow shall be banished. The second passage. He shall speak peaceably to every nation and his, his reign will be universal. Well, that's, that's the claim that the, that the evangelist is making for Jesus, implicit in this reference to Zechariah. And particularly, so it's important to remember, it's, his reign will involve the dismantling of the apparatus of organized violence, and it will spread to the ends of the earth. It, it will break the cultural confines. It will no longer be an exclusively Jewish phenomenon or Israelite phenomenon. And then it says, at, the, at that time the disciples did not understand this, that, namely riding in on a donkey or this reference to Zechariah. But later, after Jesus had been glorified, they remembered that this had been written about him. In other words, they reinterpreted Zechariah as referring to Jesus. Uh, all who had been with him uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were telling how they had witnessed it. And because of this, the crowd had come to meet him and they heard that he had given, when they heard that he had given this sign and so on. So there's a great crowd coming to him. And it says, then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, there's nothing you can do. The whole world is running after him. The whole world, that, that's to say the cosmos, because the whole world means the, the, world, the whole world of culture. But the whole world is running after him. And now you get both a kind of, uh, a kind of how can I say, there's something positive and something a little darker in this reference. The whole world is, is picking up on this idea that the, his reign will be universal. But the whole world is running after him. Uh, there is a kind of stampede quality to this. And the gospel is very um, realistic 
about the crowd phenomenon. It's really the revelation of the crowd phenomenon. And the fact that the whole world is running after him is by no means a, an altogether joyous sign. It's inevitable that the whole world will be... Will, he, he says later, I will, I will draw all men to myself. That's a, much, that's a much more gradual process, you see. To draw all men to myself is one thing, but to have the whole world running after you is another thing altogether. The world, even if they're running after you in order to crown you, which is what's happening here. Uh, as we talked about earlier in the gospel, this idea of being a king, making him a king, is really not distinguishable from making him the scapegoat victim. It's one and the same phenomenon. And so the whole world is now running after him. Jesus for... Oh, sorry. Next verse says, Among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks... And this would be, of course, Greek-speaking. These, these would be uh, what were called God-fearing Jews, namely people who, who went to Passover, who worshipped uh, at the temple, were, took part in Jewish life at least marginally, but who were not Jews uh, officially, who were Gentiles, who were simply enamored of the Jewish religious tradition. So they were called God-fearing Gentiles. So that's what this verse refers to. But, does, but that, that's the important part is that they are Greeks. They are non-Jews who are coming to the festival as well. So among those who came up were some Greeks. These approached Philip, who came from Bethsaida in Galilee, and put this request to him, Sir, we should like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip together went to tell Jesus. So they go to tell Jesus, Look, there's some Greeks here. They would like to see you. What about it? Jesus replies, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's an absolute non sequitur, except if we see it in relationship to this, this talk that has preceded it about universality. The Greeks have now come looking for you. In other words, even though they're God-fearing, even though they're they're Greeks at the margins of Jewish society. Still in all, they are outside uh, the, the Jewish culture. They come from outside the Jewish culture. It's, the, it's a clear indication. The Samaritan woman was a... Uh, the Samaritans lived somewhere on the periphery as well of Jewish uh, culture. They, were, they regarded themselves as children of Abraham and so on. So there's a little bit of this in the uh, Samaritan woman story. But here... Clearly, the whole world is beginning to come to him. And at that point, he says, now the hour has come. It has an echo of that, again, the passage in Caesarea Philippi. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, bingo, now we can go to Jerusalem. Now I can die. Now you know. What it, you know the significance of... If I die and you have to watch it, you will know the significance of it because now you know that I'm the Messiah. There's something comparable going on here. Now the whole world is coming to me. Now I realize that it is unstoppable. It cannot... If it had been... I can, I can only imagine this in a kind of structural sense. If it had remained, as Paul said, a, a strictly Jewish affair or a strictly... Christian affair, if you think of Christianity as a, as a religion, a cult religion, 
it could never have become what it was destined to become. It had to, it had to, uh, at some point, it had to break out of whatever cultural or cultic confinements it was uh, that first gave it birth, and then one knows that it, there will be no stopping it. But it was only after there's a crack in that cultural shell that Jesus says, "Now I know that I can go. I don't have to worry about." It. This goes back a little bit to this concern he has about about the morning rituals at Lazarus' uh, tomb. You see, if, if Jesus dies and there's just that kind of ritual mourning, they'll just turn it into religion again, and, they'll be, and it'll, it won't be anything different from what has already been. But once he gets an indication that that's not going to happen and that it's already outside of that cult, it can't be contained by that cult, then he knows he can go to Jerusalem and die. And he says, I tell you most solemnly, unless a grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single grain, but if it dies... It yields a rich harvest. And he realized that rich harvest now means the whole world. The harvest now, he realizes, if I know, others are in on it. It, can't, it won't be a closed affair with just those who are initiated, but it will seep out. The word will get out. And, and carrying that word out is what Paul did. When the Pharisees say the whole world is running after him, uh, I think we have to understand the whole world as we have to read the word the, the phrase whole world as positive and read the phrase running after him as negative. There's a kind of a, a mimetic runaway underway which has no which which uh, can just change its valence from positive to negative very quickly, which is exactly of course what it does from Palm Sunday to pa- to the passion and there's a story in in Aztec lore of, of uh, the uh, demise of Quetzalcoatl and the rise of Tezcatlipoca, which is exactly that way. Tezcatlipoca is, a, is this figure who's regarded as a god after he's been killed, who shows up and he's so dazzling that uh, he steals the thunder from the reigning uh, god king, Quetzalcoatl. And, he's, and he plays a new song, he dances new dances, he does all these sort of new and dazzling things. And he draws everybody to him. All of a sudden, Quetzalcoatl, nobody wants to go to his rituals anymore. Who cares? He's a, he's a has-been. But this young, brilliant, uh, radiant figure has everybody's attention. He's, as they say of Hamlet, the observed of all observers. And he dances and sings and he whips up a kind of Dionysian frenzy among these people. But then strange things start to happen. Two Two events. One is... Uh, they follow him like a Pied Piper across a bridge, and there's so many of them, the bridge falls into the river, and they're all turned into stone, which is a strange reference, you know. People don't turn into stones except in mythology, and mythology exists only to keep us from seeing what really happened. So there's, we don't know what happened, but I think we can imagine that some kind of crowd phenomenon got out of hand. Second thing is he... He uh, created this magic thing, and he had puppets dancing on the, on his hands, and it was so dazzling to everybody. They crowded in to see, and a lot of people suffocated and died. Well, uh, again, some kind of crowd phenomenon got out of hand, and people started dying. And finally, this was all resolved when Tezcatlipoca said, Well, the, all of this death is happening because of me. I think you better stone me. And you, people only talk that way in myths, you know. It's a little bit, there's a little of this in Jonah. You know, I think you better throw me overboard. Um, 
this this only happens. Uh, this is a mythological uh, kind of narrative. So they stone him, and then as soon as they stone him, they realize that he was God, and they set up a religion based on his the recollection of his earthly visit. After that, every year on the anniversary of his stoning, they select a prisoner of war, the most handsome, striking specimen they have, and they spend the whole next year dressing him up, teaching him how to be totally attractive. He's, he, the, he learns to sit certain way, walk certain way, smoke certain way, dance, play the flute. He becomes this most incredibly in, uh, fascinating figure, just the same way Tezcatlipoca was. And at the end of the year, they bring him to the steps of the great pyramidal shrine, and he walks up these steps and breaks his flute as he's walking up. When he gets to the top, he lays on the altar, and the priest takes his obsidian knife and rips his chest open and brings, takes, rips his heart out and offers it to God. Well, it's a striking thing. But when the Johannine Jesus says, the whole world was running after him. I think uh, we have to realize that these fascinations, this kind of intense fascination, turns not only easily but inevitably to, in, an, in, the, in its natural environment, that, that total fascination turns inevitably into something of a sacrificial, uh, with a sacrificial uh, feature to it. I think and maybe, and this again might be a structural thing, but I think at this point in the gospel it is clear that the Johannine Jesus understands that. He understands it in the way that sailors understand the weather and in the way that physicians understand the onset of a, of a viral infection. Uh, they see the, the onset of the viral infection is like the Palm Sunday. It's, doesn't, it's nothing, not alarming, but a physician would see it as, oh well, that means the following things are going to happen over the course of the next 10 days. You see what I mean? I think the Johannine Jesus and the Bible as a whole sees these social phenomenon in exactly that, that way. They recognize that dynamic. I think we can understand what's going on here in terms of Jesus' recognition of the onset of the sacrificial crisis and his attempt to prepare those who he knows are going to be caught up in it for the necessary act of reinterpreting it when they finally awaken from its, from its madness. And so he begins to instruct them. Okay. The most important passage in the Bible is always the one you're currently thinking about. But I would be very tempted to say, and on another occasion I could say it about dozens of other passages, but... I would be very tempted to say that the, what I'm about to quote to you is the most important passage in the New Testament. You will have occasion to make me eat my words many times over, probably. But uh, here's the passage. I think it's a tremendously significant passage at the end of chapter 12. Once the Johannine Jesus sees that he is moving irreversibly towards his own death at the hands of the mob and, the, and those people in authority who have been manipulated by the mob, he treats it as though it's a kind of showdown. 
He says, now sentence is being passed on this world, this cosmos, cosmos being the synonym really for culture much more than for earth. Now sentence is being passed on this world. Now the prince of this world is to be overthrown. The cosmocrator, the prince of this world, the organizer of this world is about to be overthrown. Who, by the way, is the organizer of this world? Satan, as he says earlier. Satan is the organizer of this world. The devil is your father. And Satan is the accusatory principle. The word means the accuser. It's the satanic force is the force that, that translates random and reciprocal antagonisms into a unanimous, consensual uh, animosity or contempt for one figure or one opponent or one enemy. So the satanic force is the force that generates and regenerates human culture. And he says, now sentence is being passed on this world. Now the prince of this world is to be overthrown. And when I am lifted up from the earth, meaning the crucifixion, I shall draw all men to myself. It's the most incredible, audacious statement. And people say, well, it wasn't made by the historical Jesus. It was made by the Johannine Jesus in the latter part of the first century. Okay, fine. It's an outrageous claim, even if it's made in the latter part of the first century. The faith that gave rise to that claim is an incredible faith. It is that this, the revelation of the cross, will eventually affect everything. He understands that his death will be a showdown with the organizing principle of human culture. Okay, so he's just said, sentences passed on this world, the prince of the world is to be overthrown, and when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. The crowd answered, the law has taught us that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And now we realize how shallow the, the crowd's understanding of him is. It's the crowd phenomenon is purely mimetic. It is a crowd that is running after him. In other words, it's a stampede. It's a, it's a, it's a mimetic runaway. They don't have any sense of what he is or who he is. And they have the conventional messianic expectation. King, going to have a, the, the, uh, the, the world's going to be fine now and so on, and, they, and he talks about being lifted up, and so they say, who is this son of man? And Jesus replies the following, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light, or the dark will overtake you. He who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. While you still have the light, believe in the light, and you will become children of light. I think what we have here, again, is the Johannine Jesus realizing that everyone he's speaking to is about to be engulfed in darkness. And it, of course, is the darkness of the 
mimetic contagion. The Jesus of this gospel is not, is not a 19th century romantic. The Johannine Jesus understands perfectly well the power of the mimetic contagion. And I think he sees here that the lights are going to go out pretty soon. You know, Moynihan's book on ethnicity, he talks about uh, an ethnic rivalry in the 20th century. He talks about uh, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in 1914, and then he says the lights went out in Europe. And I think this talk of the lights are going out is a, is a marvelous uh, metaphor for what happens when the mob phenomenon takes over, when the sacrificial mentality gets us in its grip. We think it's the moment when people who are most in its grip feel most lucid. They're absolutely sure who the enemy is. They're absolutely sure what has to be done. They're driven by an imperative that they, that that's so clear they just can't believe that... I mean, they don't need to disbelieve its power because everybody else is caught up in it. But in, in, the point is, there's this illusion of lucidity and in the midst of darkness. And that's the mimetic contagion. And Jesus, the Johannine Jesus here says, I think the evangelist is showing us the superficiality of the crowd's attraction to Jesus. He says, I'm going to go die and, and, uh, and uh, overthrow the power of this world. And they say, wait a minute. Uh, what, who? And he's talking about the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? What's happening? I thought the Messiah was going to live forever. They don't understand any of this. And then he says to them, look, you only have the you'll only have the light a little bit longer. The light, of course, this evangelist says, is Jesus himself. I am the light of the world. You will only be able to see that light a little bit longer, not only because I'm going to die, but because in a little while the very same mimetic process that has you there staring at me in in wonder and fascination in a few days will have you demanding my death. And you won't even see it. You will be lost in it. So you will, you see me as the light now, but pretty soon the lights are going to go out and you will simply see me as someone who has to be eliminated. And he says, as long as you have the light, you have it for a little while longer. This is what I think about this passage. He sees that uh, the sacrificial uh, thing is closing in on them. And he only has a little while to talk to them. Now, why does he want to take advantage of that little while? Because everything depends. This is, this, Jesus does not think that some might... He doesn't hold out hope that some might survive this mimetic contagion. He doesn't say, well, let's get a few of these people who won't fall into the grip of the, of the mimetic uh, delusion. He knows perfectly well that everybody will fall under it. The only question is, can he have an influence on some of them, such that after the spell wears off, they will come to their senses. And they will rem remember not the myth of the sacrificial violence, but the fact of his life and his presence. And I think this is the whole tenor of these passages in the early part of, uh, of in the last part of 12 and the early part of 13 and 14, where Jesus is trying to, is trying to leave an imprint on these people, realizing that pretty soon they're going to forget everything in this, in this delusion, hoping against hope that they will hear the cock crow, like Peter, that, the, that that's the only 
Our only hope is that we will wake up after one of these fits of delusion and realize what we have done. Every Christian conversion is an act of repentance. The Christian lucidity is always the lucidity of the repentant one, the one who realizes, oh, look what I did. Look what I did. And he realizes that's going to happen. But he says, the dark was... Uh, walk in the light while you have the light. He who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. While you still have the light, believe in the light, and you will become children of the light. The, the lights will go out for a while, but eventually you'll wake up, and you will remember not the myth that justified my death, but the life that uh, culminated in it. This idea of waking up the morning after is dramatically illustrated in a scene in William Golding's Lord of the Flies. You know, these English schoolboys land on this island uh, alone, no adults with them, and pretty soon they become primitive. And they reinvent uh, primitive rituals, primitive sacrificiality, primitive religion. And they, in one night, they, they, and there's, they, they think there's a monster up on the hill and so on. And one night they whip themselves up into this sacrificial frenzy with drums and spears and dancing and, and bonfires and so on. And this little kid named Simon comes stumbling down the, the, the mountain to the beach where they're having this uh, ritual. And uh, they see him and they, they say, oh, he's the monster. He's, and they attack him and kill him. And this is the next morning. There are two, two kids now on the beach. One is Ralph, who was the original leader of the group, and the other is Piggy, who will become its next victim. And here's the dialogue between them. Ralph, uh, it says, at last Ralph stopped. He, sh he was shivering. Piggy? Huh? That was Simon. You said that before. Piggy? Huh? That was murder. You stop it, said Piggy shrilly. What are you doing talking like that? He jumped to his feet and stood over Ralph. It was dark. There was that, that bloody dance. There was lightning and thunder and rain. We were scared. I wasn't scared, said Ralph slowly. I was... I don't know what I was. We were scared, said Piggy excitedly. Anything might have happened. It wasn't what you said. He doesn't even want to say the word. And then it's as though Piggy... You, you get this idea that Piggy, Piggy's mind is racing. It can't be murder, right? It's got to be something else. So what else could it be? And his mind is going through, trying to figure out what it was besides that. And then he f figures out what it was. It was an accident, said Piggy suddenly. That's what it was, an accident, his voice shrilled again. Coming in the dark, he hadn't no business crawling like that out of the dark. He was batty. He asked for it. He gest gesticulated wide, wide, widely again. It was an accident, he exclaimed. Well, you have here in this little story Piggy and Ralph wrestling with each other over whether to tell themselves something soothing or somewhat soothing about what had happened or face up to it. And there's a tremendous 
resistance as there is in Piggy to really recognizing what has happened. And I think this is part of this of Jesus saying that the darkness will come over you. When it comes over you, Ralph says here, uh, he says, I wasn't scared. I was, uh, I don't know what I was. He got caught up in it too. But when it's over with, it's the time to, when we realize what we've done. And I think Jesus is preparing people to, to, to realize that. He's saying, the light will be with you a little while longer and then it will be gone. But if you walk in the light as long as it's here, you will eventually become children of the light. It will dawn on you again after that period of complete delusion. Okay. The Last Supper, Chapter 13. Very little mention of supper. That's not the gesture that's being celebrated most of all. It says, Jesus knew the hour had come. He always loved those who had been his own in the world. This is part of the Eucharistic, one of the Eucharistic prayers. They were at supper. The devil had already, been, had already put into the mind of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. Fully aware that the Father had put everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God, Jesus got up from the table, removed his outer garment, and taking a towel, wrapped it around his waist. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples and to wipe them with the towel he was wearing. This is unbelievably dramatic. It is the act of a slave. Now, this is what's so important. This is the very beginning of 13. We've moved now into the, into the book of glory. The culminating... I think the way to read the book of signs is the book of signs culminates in the, in the anointing of Jesus' feet by, the, by Mary with the expensive oil. Meaning, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you have touched us with the love of God. Every complete, unreserved devotion. You are the Master. The book of signs is complete. This, it, it has reached its, its perfect expression. The first gesture in the book of glory is that Jesus... You could say this. You could say that the book of signs is, is a gradual mantling of Jesus with the messianic mantle. Putting the messianic mantle on Jesus until he is completely draped in the messianic mantle represented by Mary's act of devotion. The first gesture in chapter 13, the book of glory, is the dismantling of Jesus. He takes off his mantle, his robe. He strips, really. He strips naked like a slave and puts on a little towel around his waist and washes his disciples' feet, which is a gesture performed by the household slave for those who were very important people. So if someone arrived who was a very important person and the master was a, 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 a master with slaves, household slaves, the household slave would bring the basin and wash the feet of this very important person. And this radical, you see, so you have a kind of diptych here. 
of the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary with the expensive oil and Jesus stripping naked like a slave and washing his disciples' feet. It's absolutely incredible. And they have to be seen as, we have to recognize these as both profound truths about Jesus' life and the, and the Christian revelation. If you, if you have one without the other, you miss it. You see? It has to be both of those. That's what this evangelist is telling us, and I think it's, I think it's so. Now you have another version of the little dialogue that took place when Jesus, when Mary was anointing Jesus' feet. You know, Judas said, "Wait a minute, why don't we do something? This is out of this is out of character. Let's think about the poor." In this story, Peter says, "Hey, this is out of character." Wait a minute, he says. Let's get this straight. You're the master. We're the disciples. Don't confuse things. He came to Simon Peter, who said, "Lord." Are you going to wash my feet? Simon Peter is always this wonderful human fellow, you know. And Jesus said, At the moment, you do not know what I am doing. But later, you will understand. And I think this, again, goes back to this thing of we're now entering this thing where you won't... All I can do now is work with your memories. I can't... I can't... You know, all I can do is lay down events in your memory. And in the aftermath of this thing we're about to all get swept up in, you will remember this. And then you will realize. Later you will understand, he said. Never, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. He just doesn't want to mix it up. You're the man. He want, There's a part of this gospel, you know, is the, is the transition from being a follower to being a disciple. A follower is a straightforward sort of you're you're the leader I'm the follower I'll go wherever you go etc et uh, a disciple is much more of an of where a disciple is one in whom Christ now lives in me and uh, Peter doesn't get it and so Jesus says to him if I do not wash you Peter you will have nothing in common with me so you have to submit to the... This is really the sacramental act in, at the Last Supper in John. It's not the breaking the bread, but the washing feet. It's a powerful revelation of Jesus as the slave, and it's important to remember, it is the recognition of the dignity of his disciples. He's recognizing them as masters. He's commissioning them to go into the world and be like him. I'll come to that in a minute. So he says to Peter, uh, unless you let me wash your feet, you will have nothing in common with me. Well, then you have Peter says, well, okay then, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head, everything, wash me, he says. And you get a sense here, I get a sense here, of Jesus sort of hitting his forehead with the palm of his hand, thinking, uh-oh. Now, the pendulum has gone the other way. Peter, Peter, this earnest guy, you know, he now thinks that this is a ritual washing. I, I, I feel this. Because Jesus then says, no one who has taken a bath needs washing. He is clean all over. You too are clean. In other words, he's, he glares at Peter and he says, Peter, 
I'm not, because washing meant not just washing the dust off, it meant washing the sins away. It meant somehow purifying yourself in some ritual. See, some ritual purification process. And he glares at Peter and he says, Peter, you are clean already. The point of this thing is not a ritual washing because, and he's working with Peter's memory because Peter, if you remember this as a ritual washing, you're going to reinvent religion. And I'm here to try to prevent that. This is not a ritual washing. This is the master being the servant. Please note, this is the master being the slave. And this is me deputizing you to be the Christ in the world. I'm creating Christlings. That's what we... I mean, that's... We, we have... We, the audacity of calling ourselves Christians is like Christlings. You know, it takes your breath away to think of it. That's what he's doing. So I'm, gonna, I'm creating Christlings here, folks. You remember Mary? What Mary did to my feet? I'm doing it to your feet. You get it? You get it? It's not ritual washing. And when he had washed their feet and put on his clothes again, he went back to the table. Do you understand, he said, what I have done to you? And the answer, of course, is no. And so he says, you call me master and Lord, and rightly so, that is what I am. If then the Lord and Master has washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. I have given you an example that I want you to copy. I mean, it's absolutely explicit in the text. I am giving you an example. Now, if we say, okay, the example is to be copied in the way, uh, well, we should just have ritual washings. Well, we do to some extent. Those, those exist in the Christian uh, in Christian liturgies, but the point of it is not that. The example is that the master is now the servant, that there's no distinction between the master and servant. You know, Northrop Fry, in his first book on the Bible, The Great Code, says the world comes to an end, meaning the world of uh, the conventional world, the conventional zeitgeist, or what this gospel calls the cosmos, um, this calls this world, comes to an end when the master and the servant become the same person and represent the same thing. That's Northrop Fry. And I think it's right here. Because the dial... You know, this is, this is Hegel, you know. The dialectic of the master and the servant is the dry, this driving dialectic in history. It's shattered. It's shattered right here. And so he says... I've given you this example because I want you to become Christ in the world. I want you to do this to other people. This is, this is a, a, a demonstration of what he says later, which is, love one another as I have loved you, which is, we would not have said it that way. If we were going to say something like that, we would have said, love one another as you have loved me. It's the logical thing to say. But he doesn't say that because... He, we, they hadn't loved him the way he had loved them. So he said, love one another the way I have loved you. Namely, I have loved you in a way that made you come alive. You know, you have loved me in your little funny, different, various 
funny ways you have of loving people, but I have loved you in a way that makes you realize your, your dignity, your significance, the fact that you are loved by God. That's how I have loved you. Now what you've got to do is go out and love everybody else that way. You have to start a counter-mimetic revolution. You have to introduce people to the love of God in such a way that they, that they become immune to these delusional forces that, that uh, periodically sweep over us all and convert us into participants in primitive religion. I mean, I'm saying all this very fast, but I think it's... He's deputizing people to go out and touch other people the way he has and restore a sense of, of uh, dignity. Okay, very, I'll be very quick here because I know we're late. He has just profoundly confused the master-servant relationship. And then he says, I tell you most solemnly, no servant is greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the man who sent him. Now that you know this, you can be happy if you behave accordingly. Unbelievable. He just confused this whole thing, and now he says, I just want to tell you something. <laughs> it's funny because this is the one thing the modern world won't hear anything of. The idea of having a Lord is the supreme insult in our world. It's the, it's, uh, it's, uh, the obvious acknowledgement that we, are, that we are craven cowards, uh, afraid afraid to assert ourselves or some other thing, you know. And Jesus is saying it's the key to happiness. The key to happiness is to know who your Lord is. And the key to unhappiness is to have about two dozen of them and to deny every one of them and to pretend that you don't have one. And you'll just go nuts. 